right, Brett. Good morning, family. All right, first order of business is I'm going to set a timer for myself. Yeah, I don't appreciate the laughter. Jerks. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Yes, I, okay, it's deserved. Sometimes I can go long. So, all right, so I'm setting the timer. One hour should be good. All right. Uh, okay, second order of business. I have covered some of this material in some different classes, different groups, uh, but I haven't really covered uh, all of it and kind of put this whole talk together, uh, Grace. So um, that's what we're going to do today. So some, some of the stuff you hear, maybe some stuff you've heard before, that's okay, but there will be uh, a lot of some new material here as we talk about the issue of doubt. Now, as we, um, as we jump into doubt, the very first thing we need to do is we need to define doubt. Okay, so when we talk about doubt, what do we mean? Well, as we're going to talk about it this morning, doubt is simply uncertainty about God. Uncertainty about God. Now, I'd like to do a little survey here. Um, I want you to raise your hand if you have personally ever experienced at any point in your life uncertainty about God. Raise your hand. Please keep it up. I want you to look around at all the sinners here. Okay. (laughs) That's, I mean, okay, put your hands down. That's virtually every one of us in here. My hand would be raised as well, right? Um, and, and I think that's an important insight because oftentimes when we personally struggle with doubting God, being uncertain about him in various ways, uh, that can be a very isolating experience. We sometimes feel like we're alone in that. Uh, when you look at the Bible, is there anybody in the Bible who struggled with doubt and uncertainty about God? Yeah, it's like a book about doubters, isn't it? You go all the way back to the beginning. Go to Abraham. Oh, go to Adam and Eve. But Abraham, who, who enters into the Abrahamic covenant with God, right? he's in this, apparently, a, um, an, uh, you know, a, a, this relationship with God where they're audibly, you know, he's audibly hearing the voice of God. God promises to bless all the nations of the world through him. Right? Here's someone who's in close relationship and communication with God. Does he experience doubt and uncertainty about God? Absolutely. In fact, it's interesting to note the relationship between doubt and uncertainty and then our actions. Right? So Abraham doubts God's promises. And what does he end up doing? He ends up, te- you know, uh, he and his wife take her servant and he sleeps with her to have a, uh, a child. Right, so Abraham doubted. Moses, did Moses have any episodes of doubts? Yeah, some pretty big ones, right? Um, Job, the whole book of Job is about his doubt and his uncertainty in the face of evil and suffering, right? And here's a man who's called blameless in that first chapter. Uh, King David, a man after God's own heart. Did David experience any doubt? Yeah, and it got him in a lot of trouble. How about the men who walked with Jesus, who saw with their own eyes, they were eyewitnesses to his miraculous deeds? Did they doubt? Did the disciples doubt? Yeah, Thomas, uh, Peter, some pretty serious episodes of doubt, right? How about John the Baptist? Yeah, so here's the point. The the, The Old and New Testament are filled 
with people who doubted God. So if you've ever doubted, if you currently struggle with doubt and uncertainty about God, relax. You are in good company. You're in good company. In fact, C.S. Lewis C.S. Lewis may be the greatest defender of Christianity in the 20th century, expresses his share of doubt in his book, Christianity. Uh, He says this, he says, now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. And that's Lewis, right? But if you continue to read the quote... He goes on to say, but when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable, <laughs> right? And, and, and here's the insight is that it's not just religious people that struggle with doubt. It's not just the Christian that struggles with doubt. Uh, doubt is a universal human experience. Even the atheist can doubt. His doubt just goes the other way, right? Well, maybe there is a God. And so doubt is something that everyone experiences. So if you've doubted, if you're in the midst of doubt, if you struggle with that, that's, that's okay. But what I want to do this morning is look, at, number one, at the different kinds of doubt, because not all doubt is the same, and then the appropriate response to each different kind of doubt. Because I, if we don't understand the nature of doubt, I don't think we'll be able to navigate it very well. And doubt can be something that drives you away from God, even for good. Or it can be a tool that God uses to take you into deeper faith. And that, we want the latter. Now, um, I want to give you some homework here. I want to give you a, some reflection to do this week that's related to this. And there are three things I want you to reflect on. So uh, if you're taking notes... Uh, which you should be. Um, If you're taking notes, I want you to write down these three categories, and I want you to reflect on these three categories this week. Okay, number one, here's the first question I want you to reflect on. Um, If you were to write down your top two or three questions about God or your objections to the Christian faith, what would they be? Like, what are your biggest skeptical questions about God, about uh, Jesus, about the Bible, about God's moral uh, and ethical teaching? Whatever it might be, what are your biggest questions, doubts, challenges, uh, skepticism? What are those? And identify what those might be. Okay, here's the second area of reflection, all right? Number two, I want you to, to think about a different area of your life. I want you to think about the hurts and the pains. And this one might take a little more effort because it's not the kind of thing that we, we, we go around thinking about, right? What are, oh, what are all the hurtful things that have happened to me in my life? So you might have to dredge this one up a little bit. But if you were to identify two to three of the most painful episodes in your life, what would they be? It could be anything from maybe a, a very close friend, a best friend who just stabbed you in the back. It could be broken relationships. It could be uh, a, a broken marriage. It could be a, a spouse being unfaithful. It could be uh, abuse that you've experienced. It could be pain that you have in your relationship, maybe with your mom or your dad. 
It could be a, a child who's rejected. I mean, whatever it might be, what would you say are the most painful experiences you've had? And they could be resolved or unresolved. Think about what, the, what those are and, may, and even list those, journal those. And then I want you to identify which of those pains were caused by someone who would them, uh, themselves identify as a Christian. So if it was that friend who stabbed you in the back and they identify, identified themselves as a Christian, I just want you to note that. That was a pain that came from someone who was a believer or at least called themselves a believer. And then here's the third area I want you to reflect on this week. I want you to honestly assess what are your biggest struggles with sin? What are your biggest struggles with sin? What are the top two or three in your life? Look, we we all have them, right? What are yours? So maybe um, maybe it's bitterness and anger that just kind of explodes on other people. Maybe it's the way you treat your family. Maybe it's dishonesty. Uh, Maybe it's some kind of sexual sin. What are the sins that you struggle with? And I, I, I want you to take those three areas, questions, hurts, and sins, and reflect on that this next week. Because it may provide some insight with your own struggles with uncertainty about God. How so? Well, I think each one of these areas corresponds with a different kind of doubt. Not all doubt is the same. First one uh, deals with what we might call intellectual doubt. Intellectual doubt. Intellectual doubt is where you may question the truthfulness of Christianity, whether or not this is even true. And this is caused by things like Uh, being challenged and not having answers to questions. Um, It might be caused by a skeptical friend or coworker who's kind of pounded you with that stuff. Or maybe something you've read and you just didn't know how to answer. It can be caused by our own mistaken views or bad thinking about things. Uh, It can be caused by a lack of knowledge, not being aware of the answers or the evidence there is for Christianity. And I think I've shared this before, but, uh, you know, I grew up in the, fir- uh, the first 18 years of my life, I grew up in the church. I was that church kid. My junior year in high school, I made a decision to go into full-time ministry, right? My youth pastor loved me because I was at every event. I was a student leader. And my freshman year in college, I go to a, a, a local junior college here in Southern California. I take Philosophy 101, and I meet Dr. David Lane, PhD, smart guy, and that semester... He dismantled my Christianity, and he did so intellectually. And he brought up challenge after challenge to God, to the Bible, to the ethical teaching of the Bible that I could not answer. And what that did is that sent me into a serious episode of doubt. And it was clear to me that the source of that doubt was intellectual. There were these questions that I could not answer, and I thought, if this stuff is true, then we should be able to find answers to this, right? And so there are some of us this morning in here right now who who struggle with this kind of doubt. There are intellectual questions that you are just wrestling with and you're not sure what to do. Well, I think the answer, the response to this is very clear. We are to seek out satisfying answers. We are not to shy away from the challenges to the Christian faith. 
There's nothing to be afraid of. Look, if it's not true, I don't want to believe it anyway, right? And I love, I, I love the scripture and its approach to these kinds of things. You know, when, when, when um, I remember when I was uh, uh, struggling with doubt as a freshman in college, I went to all, like church leaders. I went to an elder at my church. I'm asking them questions. And I remember one elder, his response to me was, oh, Brett, you know what? You just have to have faith. You just got to have faith. Now, do you think that was a satisfying answer to a, a freshman who's getting pounded in philosophy 101? No. And that's not, that's not the response that you see to a skeptical world in the New Testament, thankfully. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. And as we read Paul's words, what I want you to do is I want you to pay attention to kind of the tone uh, of this passage and, and how, how Paul uh, tells us to approach skepticism. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. Here's what Paul writes. He says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. So he's talking about this kind of warfare that we're in. And, and pause for a second. Notice, for the follower of Jesus Christ, to understand, to properly understand the world that we live in, we need to understand that we are in, we are in warfare. Did you know that? We are in warfare. But that's often hard to remember when you live in Orange County, California, right? We're just so comfortable. But we are in warfare, and it's going all around. It's going on all around us. Now, oftentimes when people think of spiritual warfare, we often think of, like, demons and angels and spiritual forces. And that's certainly part of it. But I think Paul uh, indicates here, I think that one of the, the primary ways in which spiritual warfare is taking place, notice what he says. He talks about weapons, right? But these weapons aren't tanks and bombs and guns. He says, on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. What kind of strongholds? We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So Paul doesn't say shy away from skepticism. Oh, just have more faith. No, he says confront it. Go after it. We demolish arguments that are raised up against the knowledge of God. Look at Matthew chapter 11. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. We have an interesting scene here in Matthew 11. We have John the Baptist in a prison cell, right, in Matthew chapter 11. And I want you to notice what, uh, what, what kind of uh, state of mind John is in. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2 through 5, when John who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now just pause there for a second. What is that an expression of? Doubt, right? Here you have John in prison, difficult circumstances, and what is coming to the surface? Doubt. 
John the Baptist is, is experiencing uncertainty about the identity of Jesus. Now, rewind for a second here. Rewind back to Matthew chapter 3. We have another scene with John the Baptist. What's going on in Matthew chapter 3? John does what? Baptizes Jesus, right? And if you go back to that scene, what happens in that scene? Well, uh, as John baptizes Jesus, the heavens open, the audible voice of the heavenly Father is heard. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then it says the Holy Spirit takes the form of a dove and descends. And then and John baptizes Jesus. Now, do you think that was a powerful experience? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe the most powerful experience you could have, baptizing Jesus. And the triune God shows up. Amazing experience. But then eight chapters later, we find John doubting. Now, I think that gives us some insight into the nature of experience. I think a lot of... Uh, American Christianity is so experience-driven. And not that we shouldn't experience. I think we should experience the power of the Holy Spirit, and we should experience God in deep and amazing ways. Not saying that. But oftentimes, we think if someone's struggling or whatever, they just need to have a little bit more of God. They need to have a little more experience. Well, here's somebody who had a powerful experience. Did that prevent John from doubting? No. And so now, what is Jesus' response to John's doubt? Does he say, John, you just need to experience me a little bit more? Or John, just have more faith? Or John, maybe do a couple more devotions, right? And then you won't struggle with doubt. No, here's what Jesus says in response. Jesus says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. What does Jesus point to? He points back to his miraculous deeds as evidence that he is who he claimed to be. He points to the evidence. Jesus was an evidentialist. And in response to John's doubt, he says, here's the evidence. We can do that. We can point to the evidence when we struggle intellectually. In fact, 1 Peter 3.15 says that we are in our hearts to honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, right? That's the Greek word, apologia, where we get the word apologetics. Make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, right? And so, as a, thankfully, as a, a college student... I eventually found somebody who introduced me to apologetics, which is simply a defense of the faith. And it helped rebuild my faith when I discovered there is all kinds of evidence, all kinds of answers to the challenges of Christianity. And so we need to be aware of what those challenges are, especially for the sake of our kids. I mean, for those of us in an older generation, the questions that we were confronted with are not necessarily questions our kids are going to be confronted with. And when we start looking at the culture and all the voices that surround our, uh, our, our ki kids and us, frankly. Uh, we need to be aware of what those intellectual challenges are. I think that ch often the challenges aren't direct attacks on Christianity. I mean, yeah, we, we've got to be aware of the, 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 you know, the atheist and the skeptic and all that. But oftentimes, what's, uh, the, the biggest challenges to the faith are these t particular issues that run contrary to the Christian, Christian ideas and Christian worldview, 
And then over time, it just slowly chips away at the faith. So you take something like gender identity, right? And that, that's something many of us are like, that, that, you know, that we might think that's some crazy stuff. And yet you talk to teenagers today and they have friends that are transitioning. It's pretty normalized, but it runs counter to the Christian view, right? And so they're faced with challenges that we need to figure out how to answer. I think technology, the, the technological world they're growing up in, I think, may be a bigger threat to their faith than atheism. The amount of technology that they're inundated with and what it does to us, what it does to us. In fact, uh, Dave asked me to share this. Our organization, Maven, has a, a tremendous resource uh, every year in Southern California, we do a conference, uh, the Maven Conference. The next one is February 28th and 29th. And in particular, we are going to deal with uh, how do we help our kids navigate a world of screens. And this is for not just parents. It's for grandma and grandpa. It's for youth leaders. It's for anyone who is influencing any kids, 0 to 18. Uh, we, wanna, we want this to be a real resource to help you uh, navigate this world. Um, and, and look, if you've got little ones, you're like, well, we're not really at the tech stage yet. I would say go before you get to the tech stage. Because once you're in it, it's, it's a challenge. I've got two teenage smartphones. And, uh, and it's a challenge. It's a challenge. And so that's a resource. Go to mavenconferences.com. January 31st is the last day for the early uh, pricing. So I encourage you to do that. All right, um, let me just say this. I want to kind of uh, transition out of intellectual doubt, but obviously we haven't gotten into any of the specific issues. So I wanted to, I want to I make a resource available to you this week, okay? I'm, I'm a little bit nervous about saying this, but here's, here's what I'm going to do, all right? If you go to uh, our website, the Maven website, you can go to the contact page. So there's a little link at the top. Go to the contact page. There's a little box that you can kind of write in uh, any kind of question. And um, send that to us. If you have a question, uh, an issue that you're struggling with that you don't know how to answer or or you want some resources, uh, my promise to you this week will be that if you send a question in this week, and I will point you to some resources, okay? Now, that's a big commitment because I hate email, all right? (laughs) So I just want you to know the sacrifice that this is. And it expires, okay? If If I don't get your question by Friday... And you email me Saturday, you'll, you won't hear from me until next June, okay? So, um, but I will, if you have an issue that you're like, hey, here's a particular issue, I don't know how to answer it, maybe you're being, being challenged by a friend or a family member, um, I will point you to, to resources, all right? Um, so I, I'd love to help it be a resource for us that way. Okay, now, intellectual doubt is just one kind of doubt. There's a second kind of doubt, um, and and there, there's one thing, uh, one uh, unique thing that we do at Maven. We do these trips that are called immersive experiences. We've done them here with the, uh, the Grace High School group for the last six or seven years where we train students to really know what they believe and why they believe it. But then we put them in situations where they actually have to talk to people who don't believe what we believe. And so we go to Berkeley. We go to Utah. And um, it's interesting uh, just watching people's kind of unbelief in, in, in the conversations we have. I remember being up in Utah a few years ago with a, a group of college students, and we ended up meeting this guy. We were actually in line for lunch. We struck up a conversation with a, a, a Mormon guy, 
And uh, he asked us what we were doing, so we told him. And he's like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. He's like, I've been actually studying Mormonism, my own, my own faith for a while, and I got a ton of questions. And he was actually uh, kind of, seemed kind of skeptical. He was questioning it. And of course, if you've ever done any looking into Mormonism and Christianity, they're radically different, right? And so he's trying to reconcile this stuff. So we get to sit down with him at lunch. Uh, we get to uh, talk to him for a couple hours, give him resources, got his contact information. The next year we come back and say, hey, can we get together? We want to, you know, just hang out, see where you're at. So uh, our group for dinner, and we were talking with him, and he, he told us, he said, look, I have come to the conclusion that Mormonism is absolutely false. Uh, I think that the, the, the church is wrong. I've looked at the evidence. Historically, there's all kinds of problems. He says, I don't believe any of it. But then he told us this. He said, but I can't leave. I can't leave because if I leave, my wife will leave me and she'll take the kids. And all my friends are Mormons and they'll disown me. And so I'm not, I'm not going to leave. Now, notice, intellectually, he understood, right, uh, what, what, what the truth was and what was false, but there was something that was preventing him from walking away. What was that? It was something that was not intellectual in nature, but emotional. And when we talk about belief, we need to understand that not all belief is simply influenced by rationality and the intellect. Often, our beliefs are influenced by the emotional, and that's really the second source of doubt. So we call emotional doubt. Maybe in emotional doubt, you don't necessarily question God's existence. Instead, you question God's goodness. You question God's character. Okay, maybe there is a God, but I don't think I like the guy, right? And so this is caused by uh, not rationality. This is caused by our hurt and our pain. This is caused by the, the resulting depression and anxiety that we experience, maybe the bitterness, maybe a broken relationship, maybe something that's happened to us, maybe a tragedy where we hurt. This is why that second area of reflection was what are your hurts? And this kind of doubt, I think, is more volatile than intellectual uh, doubt. In fact, uh, Oz Guinness, who's a, uh, just a brilliant Christian thinker, read Oz Guinness. He's great. He has a book on uh, doubt called God in the Dark. And here's how he describes emotional doubt. He says this. The problem is not that reason attacks faith, but that emotions overwhelm reason as well as faith. And it's for reasons to dissuade them. This kind of doubt comes just at the point where the believer's emotions rise up and overpower the understanding of faith. Outvoted, outgunned, faith is pressed back and hemmed in by the unruly mob of raging emotions. Man, what a great way to capture how volatile emotional doubt can be. Uh, I may have shared this before, but um, I used to think that I was such a logical person. And then I got married. And I discovered, actually, how emotional I am, right? There have been these instances where my wife and I have been in an argument about something, and we're going back and forth. We're trying to reason it out, but 
maybe I'm hurt or she's, she's hurt and the emotions kind of rise up a little bit and we're angry with each other and we're upset and we're going back and forth. But as we reason it out, there's been times where in the very middle of that, I will hear this voice in my head. It'll be my voice. Okay, don't worry. <laughs> and I will say to myself, oh my gosh, she's right and I'm wrong. It's happened twice, I think, but <clears throat> literally, I'll have this rational reflection. It's in my mind. She's right. I'm wrong. Now, what do you think my response is? Oh, honey, pause. I am so sorry. I just realized you're totally right, and I'm wrong, right? That's what, that's what we do, right? No, not at all. No, I, I, then there's this, this going back and forth in my mind. She's right, and I'm wrong, and I don't care, you know, because <laughs> I'm hurt. And what happens? My emotions overwhelm my rationality, and I will deny what I know to be true. And that speaks to the power of emotional doubt and how we can be overcome by it. Uh, this is Crispin Sartwell. He's a f- professor of philosophy at Dickinson College. In the Atlantic Monthly a few years back, he wrote an article. I saw the title. I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting. Here's the title. Irrational atheism. Not believing in God isn't always based on reasoned arguments, and that's okay. Now, here's what he says. He says, genuinely bad things have happened to me in my life. One of my brothers was murdered. Another committed suicide. I've experienced addiction and mental illness, and I, like you, have watched horrors unfold all over the globe. I don't. I can't believe this to be the best of all possible worlds. I think there's genuinely unredeemed, pointless pain. Some of it is mine. By not believing in God, I keep faith with the world's indifference. Well, now that ought to move us to compassion. Someone who's experienced some of the most painful things in life. And what is he saying? That is reason enough to walk away from God. Not because of anything rational, but because of the hurt and the pain and the suffering. Right? Now, let's explore this idea of psychology. Because emotional doubt, really, you could call it psychological doubt. And the connection between psychology and belief. Now, If you think about the father of modern-day psychology, Sigmund Freud, Sigmund Freud took psychology and he actually aimed it at the Christian faith, used it as a weapon against the Christian faith, right? And so uh, Freud says this, he says, religious ideas have arisen from the same need as have all other achievements of civilization, from the necessity of defending oneself against the crushing superior force of nature. Okay, translation, the world's a big bad place. And so, therefore, we as human beings cope with it by coming up with religious ideas. And so, God is a crutch for the weak-minded individual who can't deal with reality, right? And that's what he says. He says, uh, psychoanalysis, which has taught us the intimate connection between the father complex and belief in God, has shown us that the personal God is logically nothing but an exalted father. So, it's just a a psychological projection to cope with the world. And so what has he done? He's given us a psychological assessment of religious belief. Now, let me just say this. Uh, Logically speaking, this is a bad argument. It actually commits a logical fallacy. 
known as the genetic fallacy, for those of you who had training in logic. Uh, now, think of the word genetic, right? Think of the word genesis. What does genesis mean? It means origin or beginning. The genetic fallacy is when you attack the origin of, of an idea and then dismiss it. But you don't deal with the rational argument of the idea, so it's a fallacy. You can't dismiss an idea based upon where it comes from. So let me illustrate this. For example, let's say we're out in the uh, lobby afterwards, and let's say we're talking about um, a, a, a hot issue. Uh, let's say President Trump's impeachment. Hey, let's, let's talk, talk about that. It's funny, I mentioned that. I can see some of you are like uncomfortable just me mentioning that. All right, so let's say we're, we're, we're talking about it out in the lobby, and we disagree on our point of view. And I'm like, where'd you hear that? You say, well, I heard it on Fox News. Or if you're, you know, on the other side of the aisle, maybe you say, I heard it on CNN. And I go, oh, give me a break. Fox News? Oh, CNN? Pfft, well, I'm not even going to listen to you. And I dismiss what you're saying on the basis of your source, the origin of the, the, the view. Oh, if Fox News said it or if CNN said it, I'm not going to believe it. Now, w- would that mean what you're saying is false because of the source? No. You can't dismiss an idea based upon its source. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't more trustworthy sources versus untrustworthy sources. But I'm saying you can't say something's false just by dismissing where it came from. Okay? Uh, if C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, we must show that a man is wrong before you start explaining why he is wrong. And so what Freud has done is he's jumped from showing us that there is no God to explaining why we don't believe in God. You see? But he has, what Freud never did is show us that there is no God. All right? Now, what's interesting is there is a psychologist, a Christian psychologist, Paul Vitz, who is a professor of psychology at New York University. He actually wrote a book called Faith of Fatherless, subtitled The Psychology of Atheism. If you want to read a short paper uh, that kind of summarizes the book, you can just type in Paul Vitz, The Psychology of Atheism, and read it, and it's fascinating. Now, um, now of course, uh, here's what Vitz does. He does a historical survey over some of the, the most prominent atheists in history, and he discovers something that's uh, uh, common in almost every single one of them. Now, what's he doing? He's doing a psychological assessment. Now, of course, we don't want to commit the genetic fallacy as well. So what we would need to do is show that atheism is false first. But once you show an idea is false, then it's legitimate to say, well, okay, if it's false, why does someone believe it? Does that make sense? Okay, so, we, so it's legitimate. If we can show that atheism is false, then it's legitimate to say, well, why might an atheist believe what he believes? And I, and I think it's actually fairly easy to show that atheism is false. All you need is one successful argument for God's existence, and atheism is false. And we have more than a dozen solid arguments for God's existence, okay? So I think it's very clear that atheism is false. Now, if atheism is false, then we can ask the question, why would an atheist believe something that's false? And here's what Witz finds as he surveys the world's greatest atheists. He looks at someone like Karl Marx. And what uh, he, he discovers about Marx is that Marx had a deep disrespect uh, for his father. Uh, and and this, re- this was a result of uh, his father's conversion to Christianity, which Marx saw as a, a sign of weakness. And he saw it 
uh, being done out of convenience to make life easier, not out of conviction. And this broke a long line of Jewish rabbis on both sides of Mark's family. And so uh, he, he makes it clear he, d- he doesn't have a very high view of his father. Uh, Witt looks at Bertrand Russell, who's a famous atheist British philosopher, wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian. And uh, Bertrand Russell, when he looks into Russell's life and he finds that Russell was actually four years old when his father died. So he really grew up without a father. Albert Camus. The French existentialist philosopher, he wrote The Stranger. Maybe you read that in school. Wrote another, a number of other novels, but was an atheist. Uh, Camus was a year old when his father died. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, the, the great German philosopher, who um, uh, claimed that God was dead, right? And uh, when Witz looks at his life, Nietzsche was four years old when his father passed away. Sigmund Freud himself. Witz finds that Freud had a, 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 a very hostile view of his father. His biographers make it clear he did not respect his father for a number of reasons. Had a very low view of his father. And what Witz finds in atheist after atheist after atheist is there is some breakdown in their relationship with their father. And even in my own relationships with, with friends who are atheists, I've seen the same thing almost with every single one. My friend Mark, who lives up in the Bay Area, told me a few years ago, he said the best thing that his father ever did for him was die. And Mark is an ardent atheist. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody who has a broken relationship with their father is going to turn out to be an atheist, but it, 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 what it indicates is that belief is not just motivated by rational factors, but there are emotional factors that play a role in why we believe what we believe. Or, now for some of us, some of us might be sitting there and we might be thinking, hey, that's me. I grew up with a dad, without a dad. Or my dad was cold or hostile. And that may, it may not lead you to atheism, but it may impact the way you relate to the Heavenly Father. If you had a, a father who was just overly strict, all about rules, then maybe that's how we view God. And and here's the key point. The insight behind this is that there are emotional reasons why we struggle with doubt and uncertainty and unbelief. And so maybe it's not a father figure, but maybe it's some deep wound that you have. Maybe uh, maybe you've lost someone you really cared about tragically. And you just look to God and say, why, God? Or maybe it's been someone who's hurt you someone who claimed to be a Christian and hurt you. Maybe they were a Christian and they hurt you in such deep ways. And that has created all kinds of uncertainty and doubt. What that does to us is that that pain, that hurt, can create bitterness and anger that festers. And what it does is it causes us to run away from God. In our woundedness, we walk away from God. Now, what's the solution here? Well, the solution is the exact opposite. God doesn't want us to run from Him in our pain. He actually wants us to run to Him in our pain. He wants us to take our pain to Him. He wants us to take our anger to Him. I mean, read the Psalms. The Psalms are pouring out of David's raw emotion. 
And if you are someone in here who maybe struggles uh, and can identify that, yeah, it's not the intellectual stuff, it's the emotional stuff that has driven a wedge between me and God, then I would encourage you, make Psalm 139 a prayer. Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. Here's what David says. And this could be your prayer for the next week or month or even year. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Notice the psychological term. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Right? How are we allowing the pain and the woundedness to lead us in hurtful ways? God wants us to take that stuff to him. In fact, Philippians, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, uh, Paul gives some very specific instruction that I think would be is very practical and very helpful for us, for those of us who, who feel this, the hurt and the pain and maybe the resulting anxiety. Here's what Paul says. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, I want you to notice he gives three pieces of advice here. Three practical steps. Number one, but in every situation by prayer and petition, right? So number one, pray. Bring that stuff to God. It's kind of the idea of like all that pain and that hurt and that woundedness. You know, I'm going to bring that to God and pray, and I, I'm going to ask God, I'm going to petition him to help me with it. And it's the idea of kind of laying it at his feet, right? And try, giving it over to him and then trying to leave it there. Now, often what happens is, you know, something will, 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 will uh, kind of bring that stuff back up and we'll go running back and we, we'll, we'll, we'll grab it. And so that's a constant process. But, but praying and asking God to help us take that away. And then, then Paul says something that's counterintuitive here. So prayer and petition, but then secondly, what do you do? You give thanks. Yeah, even in our pain. Even in our hurt, even in our woundedness, we give thanks. Even if you don't feel like giving thanks. Because Paul has insight from the Holy Spirit on the nature of human psychology and the nature of the human soul. Think about it. When I focus on the things I'm thankful for, it changes my mindset. It changes my emotional state. Right? And so we give thanks even if we don't feel it. And, and let the truth lead us. And then Paul gives us a third thing. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, here's number three, think about such things. Direct your thoughts to the true and the good and the praiseworthy and the beautiful. Because when we direct our thoughts to those things, again, it has the power to help us in our soul, in our psychology, in our minds, in our hearts. In fact, think about it. Um, when I'm in an in argument with my wife, uh, you know, that, that can quickly spin to very negative places. And you have to battle the thoughts, overly negative thoughts about your spouse when you're in that conflict. And so what I found to be helpful is that when I'm in, in those places, what I have to do is I have to stop and I have to say, okay, I'm upset with her right now, you know, but um, let me think about the good things about this woman. Okay, she has been faithful for 23 years. She is selfless. 
Uh, she is loyal. She is loving. You know, and, and what that does, it helps pull me out of that, right? And so Paul gives us some very specific instruction for those of us who are struggling with that anxiety, that hurt, that depression, that anger. And frankly, probably all of us maybe have not attended to this as well as we need to. And so uh, Christian counseling, I think, is a tremendous tool that many of us need. Uh, It's been a tremendous tool uh, in my life and in my wife's life of dealing with our stuff. And so that's an option. Now, for some of you in here, you may say, okay, but that, that's not me. Well, that's okay. You, but you probably know somebody who's in this situation. It could be a family member, maybe one of your kids, a spouse, a friend, a coworker who you can see when you get into conversations about this religious stuff, this Christianity stuff, man, they start to get upset. In fact, I think that's one of the things that tips us off very quickly is that when we talk about these things and someone starts to get upset, it's a sign that this is not intellectual, that it's emotional in nature. In fact, uh, I remember being in a conversation with an atheist gal at the University of Colorado Boulder. We were doing a, a thing with their atheist club on campus. We did this dialogue, and um, this girl from the get-go, she, I could tell she was, man, she was mad at me. And everything that she was saying, she's very emotional about it. And we did some Q&A, and there was some dialogue with her where she, uh, her biggest complaint was that you Christians always try to force your beliefs on other people. And so I was, we, I was talking with her about that a little bit and saying, yeah, well, we don't, I can't force my belief on you, right? I can't force you to believe this stuff. I tried to persuade you. But she was adamant. She's like, no, you force your beliefs on people. And then she told a little bit of her personal history. She said, I grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist home, right? So that was her kind of idea of Christianity. And she said, I grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist home, and when I was 18 years old, my parents sent me to a change camp. This gal was a lesbian. And if you don't know what a change camp is, it's, it's a really bad idea. Um, it's, it's a bad idea. Come up, come up, by, uh, come up with uh, by Christians. But it, it's, uh, you take a kid who struggles with same-sex attraction and try to change their orientation at a week-long camp, okay? Bad idea. But, I, look, I don't know any of the background beyond that, uh, but it was clear that she was angry. There had been some kind of rejection of her from her family. She was ticked off. And so at that point, I knew it, it, she didn't need intellectual answers at that point. She didn't need, need me to give her the evidence for Christianity or whatever. At that point, we went into a different mode with her, and it was just sitting there, and what we did was we just listened to her. We let her express her anger without getting defensive. Uh, you know, she was holding back tears, um, just empathizing with her. A couple of the girls in our group just hugged her afterwards because that's what we need when we're hurting and we're wounded. And so... Maybe you know somebody who's struggling this way, and that's what they need. Okay. All right. Let's um, move to the last source of doubt. Uh, Checking my timer here. Wow. Time's flown by. We're out of time, so forget about moral doubt. (laughs) I'm sure nobody struggles with this one. Okay. I'm going to try to do this in five minutes. Here we go. All right. Moral doubt. What's going on in moral doubt? Well, Maybe you don't question that God exists. Maybe you're not 
questioning his character, but what you're particularly questioning is his rules or his laws or his, his ethical standards. You're questioning his moral laws. And this is caused by our sin. It's caused by um, peer pressure, which we often associate that term with young people. But make no mistake, we as adults struggle with peer pressure, right? Um, weak faith, a lack of sanctification, a lack of spiritual growth. And what this does is it causes us to run away from God. Think about Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Paul there lays out the fact that the evidence for God is clear all around us. And then he identifies the fundamental problem that we as human beings have. And he connects belief with morality. What does he say? We, our response to the evidence for God is we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We suppress the truth in our sin. And of course, this goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? Think about Adam and Eve's response when they're caught in sin. They start to suppress, su- suppress it, blame, deny it. So this is a problem that we as human beings have had for a long time. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I want you to listen to this atheist. His name is Thomas Nagel. He's an atheist philosopher. This dude is really smart. I'd say he might be one of the top 30 philosophers in the world, okay? Brilliant guy. He wrote a book called The Last Word, and he's very candid in this book. Listen to what he says. He says, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Now, that's an honest admission, isn't it? Now, why would he not want the universe to be like that? Well, this is another atheist, uh, Rachel Slick. She actually grew up in a Christian home. Her father is a uh, public Christian apologist, a defender of the faith. She recently came out online, came out as an atheist, and it was fascinating to read the interview with her. This is uh, what she says about growing up in a Christian home. She says, someone once asked me if I would trade in my childhood for another if I had the chance. And my answer was no. Not for anything. My reason is that without that childhood, I wouldn't understand what freedom truly is. Now, what does she mean? Freedom from a life centered around obedience and submission. Freedom to think anything. Freedom from guilt and shame. Freedom from the perpetual heavy obligation to keep every thought pure. Okay, so she's talking about a specific kind of freedom, right? What kind of freedom? Moral freedom. Notice the moral terms. A life centered around what? Obedience and submission, uh, guilt, shame, ev- uh, obligation to keep every thought pure. She's talking about mor- moral freedom, right? In particular, often the moral freedom is one kind of particular moral freedom. She says this later on in the interview. For a long time, I couldn't have sex with my boyfriend of over a year by this point without crippling guilt. I had anxiety that I was going to hell. And when you actually listen to atheists, there's a, in fact, there's a book called What's So Great About Christianity. Chapter 23 is called Opiate of the Morally Corrupt, Why Unbelief is So Appealing. And basically what the author does is he just cites atheists in their own words saying, when it comes down to it, it's about sexual freedom. 
And that's a great assessment of our culture right now. Think about the one thing that's held up as an idol in American culture. It's human sexuality. So whether you go on a social media channels, you see human sexuality as an idol all over the place. Whether it's the hot issues of culture, so take same-sex marriage, take gender identity, take um, abortion. These are connected back to human sexuality. And the point is, whether it's sexual sin or some other kind of sin, these things can drive us away from God. We take these things and we use them to suppress the truth about God. So what do we do? I'm going to skip a couple slides here, okay? Here's the first step. Number one, confess your sins to God. And number two, confess your sins to one another. See, God doesn't want us to run from us, uh, to run from Him in our sin. No matter how filthy we think we are, no matter how unclean we think, no matter how much guilt and shame we, we have, God doesn't say run from me. He says run to me. And when we do that in confession, the result is what? The result is forgiveness. Denial will not give you forgiveness. Only confession will. And you look at uh, David in Psalm 32, 1 through 5, and he talks about when, when he's silent about his sin versus when he confesses his sin. And what does he discover? He discovers the joy of forgiveness and the freedom of forgiveness and being released from the guilt of sin, right? And ultimately, this la- I'm going to skip two slides here. Ultimately, this leads us to the gospel, doesn't it? Our fundamental problem as human beings is a moral problem. Uh, so much of what we do is a suppression of, what, uh, of God's truth. And what's the answer? The answer is not to run from, it's to run to. And this is why we point people back to the gospel. That's why the gospel's good news, isn't it? And what Jesus says in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 2, he says, therefore, there is now no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, The law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's why God wants us to run to him. And so maybe for some of us, the issue that is our doubt and our uncertainty about God is not because of intellectual reasons, but it's because of moral reasons. And so I leave you with this. As you reflect on this, and it might take some time, if you or someone who struggled with doubt and uncertainty about God. Uh, try to identify the source. What's the source? If maybe you don't struggle with doubt, but you have friends or family members who do, spend some time listening and try to identify what's the real source of doubt. I remember giving uh, this talk to a group of students and, I, and I, there's a kid who I knew who was an atheist. It was at this conference. The leaders knew him. He was an atheist. I could see in the talks that I was giving, he's just sitting there, and the whole time he's just got the angry eyes at me, right? And then after I gave this talk, uh, there was a couple students who came up and talked to me afterwards, and I saw him in line to talk to me, and I'm thinking, oh, great, he's, he's coming after me. And he came up, and I could tell there's a different demeanor on him than I had seen earlier 
And he said, hey, thanks for the talk. He's like, I realized something. I'm an atheist because I hate my dad. I said, my dad's abusive. My brother hates my dad. I hate my dad. I've got other atheist friends. They all have crappy relationships with their dad. It's like, I realized that's the real source of my doubt. And it began to open him up toward God. And that's why it's so important for us to figure out what's the source of our own doubt and uncertainty. And so we need to pray and ask God to help us in this. So let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, it is an amazing thing to be able to call you Heavenly Father. You are um, the Father that we all need. Not only do you offer perfect justice, but you also offer us perfect mercy. And you give us the freedom to decide. And Lord, there are some of us in here who are hurting right now and we're, we're plagued with doubt and uncertainty. We question. And Father, I pray that um, your Holy Spirit would begin to do a work in our hearts and minds. There's some of us here who have some sin that we're deeply entangled with and we need to confess. Lord, I pray that this morning you might move us in the direction of confession, Lord. And Father, we pray ultimately that you would take our doubts and our uncertainties and use them to draw us to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.